You've heard that proverb, necessity is the mother of invention. Water is the most basic necessity and need every single person has before even a roof over their head or anything else. I believe that water will be the biggest issue in the world uh, 10 years from now. Our existence, the sustainability of the planet, everything relies on water. And people in a range of industries are working to increase water innovations and encourage conservation. This is why I get out of bed every day. Coming up, what led an energy nonprofit called Give Power to create a solar water farm that it now hopes to replicate around the world. We'll spend time with the organization's president, Hayes Barnard. And we'll also hear from experts around the world about the water solutions they're most excited about. This is The World to Come, a podcast brought to you by Bank of America, about life in the future, starting with the visionaries of today, featuring clients and partners affiliated with Bank of America. I'm Tess Viglund. In this episode, the power to replenish water. So just to kind of give you a picture, everyone knows that 70 plus percent of the planet is covered by water. But the problem is that actually only 2.5 percent of that is actually fresh water. And most of that is stuck in glaciers. So we don't actually have that much water for the population. I'm Lama Kunstimmons and I work in the thematic investing team as a strategist for Bank of America. Lauma is a research analyst from Bank of America Global Research, where she studies long-term trends that will have big impacts on the world. She says scientists estimate that 4 billion people already experience severe water scarcity at least one month a year. It's very misleading just to look at a globe and just say, great, it's all blue, we've got loads of water. When it comes to demand for fresh water, how does that break down? It's not just about how long we're showering or how much of it we're drinking, right? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. So we as households, as, as, as residents, as citizens, technically don't use that much water. But 70% of water is used by agriculture. So 70% of water is used to produce food, to produce the food that we feed animals with, to produce the animals that we eat. And also, the UN says that other industrial uses account for about 22% of global water use. So doing the quick math, that means what we use in our homes is about 10%. Of course, what industry and agriculture are producing, we're consuming, and the population is expanding rapidly. Lama says that's why farming techniques like hydroponics, which we heard about in the previous episode, are getting more attention now, in part because they use less water. She says agriculture technology companies are also developing ways to know precisely what plants need. They're monitoring the moisture levels and collecting the data. And then from that, you can really tell when you should be watering your plants, if they're watered enough, so that you don't have to use excess water. And on on the other end, what you have is other companies that are mapping the changes in elevation of various sort of fields and, and croplands. And from those elevations, you can see where water might flood and, and kill your crops. So from that, you can tell where to sort of make your ditches and optimize the sort of field drainage so that when you have too much water, you're also using that in an optimal way. Lama says urban centers are also employing new strategies for smarter water use. So one of my favorites is actually uh, the idea of a sponge city. So Singapore is a leading country for this. They're this like 
they're the city state really and they don't have many water resources themselves they're they're so tiny that they don't so where where are they going to get their water from so what they've done is they've really looked to the sky and said well hey there's rain so we can collect our water that way so they've got this kind of runoff capture system that collects water for them from skyscrapers permeable concrete and things like that on their pavements that allows them to collect the water and then reuse it There are sponge city pilots happening in China as well to help manage urban migration. The thinking is that along with adding to the water supply, the approach can be a defense against flooding. And this gets us to an important point. It's not just the demands of a growing global population. Climate change and pollution are putting enormous stress on the ecosystems that we need for fresh water. Flooding, droughts, and contamination all have an impact on access to basic drinking water. Over 800 million people do not have access to basic drinking water. This is one of the places where that's happened, a community called Kayunga, located on the coast of Kenya, near the country's border with Somalia. Alex Magoya lives here. These people are fishermen, mostly, and they don't have any other source of income. And 80% of the community live in, uh, in the shanties. It's uh, the area in Kenya that has the worst water problem. Kayunga has been devastated by a multi-year drought. Alex says during the rainy season, villagers collect as much rainwater as they can. When we met him, it was the middle of the dry season. They don't have any supply of water as we speak because they have already used up their, their harvested water from the rains, and now it's all dry. But things are different now. Villagers are able to purchase clean water from a solar-powered desalination plant. The plant removes salt and minerals from water that's pumped out of the Indian Ocean. It was built by Give Power, and Alex manages the facility. Right now, I'm the sole provider of fresh water in this community. In case I fail, or in case one of the machines fail, then they don't have any supply of water. Before the plant started operating in 2018, One of the few options was for people, usually women and children, to spend hours every day walking back and forth to a well a few miles away. That's something that struck Give Power's founder, Hayes Barnard, who we heard at the beginning of the episode. Even the water that they go fetch and they bring it back is contaminated. And so, you know, even the water that they wash their clothes with is so contaminated, it's so brackish, it has so much salt inside of it. Give Power's first big project was providing solar panels to schools around the world that didn't have electricity. Then a friend, a local Kenyan, told Hayes about the specific challenges in Kiyonga and said, hey, why don't you use your expertise in solar and battery storage and use it to bring clean, affordable water to this community? We said, this sounds like something we really want to do. We'd like to really figure out desalinization and how to power the system. And so we put a lot of time and energy. It took us about a year and a half to figure out the technology and how we'd be able to design the system in a way that would make sense from a cost perspective. And when you really look at the metrics for what you can produce the water for, for the communities. What were your questions kind of in that moment as you were hearing this idea? What was going through your mind? Yeah, the first thing you, you wonder is distribution. So if you, if you have a team that's very strong in technology, you wonder, okay, well, who's going to maintain the systems? And so it was really an effort of, okay, 
you know, we can build the tech here in San Francisco. We can design the system. We can get it in containers. We can ship it. We can do the engineering, procurement, construction, installation of the system. But that's really only half of the job. Alex had stepped forward to do the second part of the job, managing the distribution. He was there when the plant opened for business. Uh, the first day that uh, the plant started to, to work uh, was uh, the most amazing day. So th- this day we, we invited the community members, uh, the community members involved of the elders, uh, the women, the kids. And uh, when the first water was uh, produced and everyone tested, it was amazing. It was the most amazing day. The facility can process 70,000 liters of water per day, enough drinking water for about 35,000 people. Give Power is deploying another microgrid desalination plant in Haiti, and Hayes wants to build plants in other areas. He says they figured out how to counter some of the downsides of desalination. First, the price tag. By keeping their systems small, they can keep infrastructure costs down. Second, energy use. It takes a lot of energy to process the seawater, but Give Power's system can run from what's generated by the solar panels on top of the facility. Finally, the environmental impact of the byproduct that desalination leaves behind. Hayes says that Give Power is producing a much lower level of brine compared to other plants. So the, the very large-scale systems produce a significant amount of brine and salt that you don't want to just redeploy back into the ocean. These systems are significantly smaller than that. Um, at, at this time, we just we just cleanse the salt out of the system. We can redeploy that salt uh, back into the ocean in that area. And it's not at a magnitude anywhere close that would create any harm for the fish or any other animals in that area, which is why we sized it this way. The International Desalination Association estimates that about 300 million people use desalinated water for all or part of their daily needs, from San Diego County to Saudi Arabia. Water expert Lana Mazzara thinks that while desalination will remain part of the picture going forward, other developments might be even more important. She's a project leader with Boston Consulting Group. Lana worked in South Africa as the city of Cape Town made its way through a historic drought and avoided running out of water in 2018. Now she lives in Nairobi, where she's worked with the Worldwide Fund for Nature. I think the future will see more environmentally friendly ways to get more water. I see the future of people who have higher awareness of the importance of this resource, that they will decrease their demand before they think of increasing supply by desalination or anything else. She's been thinking about our relationship with water since she was a little girl. She grew up in Jordan, which is one of the most water-scarce countries in the world. She recalls a childhood where water balloons were instead filled with baking flour. And when it was time to brush her teeth, her parents watched closely. We needed to turn off the tap the minute we're not using the water. Like We were not allowed to just open the tap and brush our teeth and take our time. And now, as she looks to the future, she believes more of the world will come to rely on reclaimed water. Wastewater treatments, water recycling has been massive in some countries, whether it's Australia or Jordan or Namibia. But I think this is just going to happen all over the world. The circular economy in general, whether it's by using plastic, 
glass, water, whatever it is, making sure our economy is circular and what we use, we reuse and we recycle and use again is going to be the future. And I think this will be the biggest source of water in many countries. You said something earlier about how people will have a higher awareness of how precious water is. How does that play out beyond, say, taking shorter showers? If I imagine the world in 20 or 25 years with the eyes of an optimist, because I am one, I think that the first thing I imagine is that consumers and investors are going to start looking differently at businesses. Investors are going to look at companies and not just look at their credit risk and their stock market. They're going to look at their environmental impact score. I see a world or a future of higher education of what does water mean for us? How valuable is this resource? But also, not just for our own country, but globally. We are all one planet. Um, Each country will impact the other. Lack of water in one country will impact the other countries by migration, by um, economic impacts, many things. We're all connected. So I see that education and awareness of the importance and value of water will increase drastically. This will, in my optimist eyes, lead to much lower demand of water. Scientist Dan Fernandez also believes in the power of education to inspire sustainability. He teaches his students at California State University in Monterey Bay not to take water for granted. And this is really cool. He also teaches them how to harvest water almost out of thin air. See all the oak trees here? These are all the saplings. There's 45 of them. And 10 of them were selected to have fog collectors placed in front of them. This one looks like it's doing pretty well, actually, this sapling. Dan is a fog specialist. His goal is to get as much water as he can out of fog and into a bucket. And what you see next to it is the fog collector. It's about seven feet tall from the bottom part of the mesh to the top. We're standing in the middle of a grassy field surrounded by what look like football goalposts covered in black mesh. These are the fog collectors he's talking about. And at the bottom of each big mesh rectangle is a container slowly filling with water. When the water drips down off the mesh, it drips into a little rain gauge at the bottom. And the rain gauge measures the amount of water that passes through it. These fog collectors are kind of an outdoor lab, a classroom. I also see fog as a tool for really getting young people excited about the world around them. The enthusiasm that that engenders and the excitement that that brings to people, I think is wonderful. And I'm hopeful that that could be one direction that fog water can play in thinking about the future in terms of just getting people excited and engaged and that we can make positive changes that I haven't even considered. While Dan wants his work to inspire new technologies, some countries already harvest fog to help with their water needs. And he says more areas should consider it. There are places where fog water can be practical. Some villages, maybe some horse ranches, maybe even some farms. It just probably is not going to be the magic solution to all of our water woes. However, it can provide some source of of water where there otherwise wouldn't be. In areas that don't have the humidity necessary for fog, scientists are experimenting with harvesting atmospheric water using nanoscale polymers. 
Bank of America analyst Lau McCallens-Timmons says there isn't just one magic solution for our future water needs. Everything has to be on the table, the water table. And she says the innovations already underway are exciting. She says new technologies could transform our water use. As an example, she points to a shift that's happened in the last two decades. In the past 16, 17 years, uh, water consumption in, in U.S. households has fallen. So people have put in things like water-efficient toilets, uh, water-efficient washing machines, showers, and things like that that mean that actually we're already cutting back on, on, on our water use. Now, this could be cut back further. People, people estimate that this could be cut by over a third, uh, even more. So there is a long way to go in, in terms of that. But there are ways to cut things down. This is what motivates Hayes Barnard, knowing that there's such an opportunity right now to innovate and make a difference. Give Power began with a focus on helping people around the world without electricity. And using clean power to create clean water was a no-brainer. If we can provide water, we can grow vegetables. If we provide water, people live longer. They can learn and get educated. This is where I'm finding the fuel and the wind in my sail to try to inspire other people to want to be a part of something great. Everyone we spoke with agrees that it will take an array of solutions to maintain our global water supply, this incredibly precious resource. And they say it's doable. The power to make a difference requires action at all levels, including the choices we make in our homes and daily lives. What would you like the power to do? On the next episode of The World to Come, what would you rather do? Convince people to harness solar energy from space? I prefer to keep the photovoltaic arrays fixed on board the spacecraft and to redirect the sunlight using mirrors large mirrors. Or convince people to put solar panels on their roofs. We just literally just like not rolled up and we're like, hi, <laughs> I live right around the corner and I was thinking, what do you reckon we put solar panels on your rooftop? And I can honestly tell you that most people shut the door. What will light the way in the future? That's next time. This has been The World to Come. I'm Tess Vigeland. B of A Merrill Lynch Global Research is research produced by B of A Securities, Inc., B of A.S., and or one or more of its non-U.S. affiliates. B of A.S. is a registered broker-dealer, member SIPC, and wholly owned subsidiary of Bank of America Corporation. Any opinions or other information correspond to the date of this recording and are subject to change. This information discusses general market activity, industry, or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as research or investment advice. Bank of America, N.A. Member, FDIC, Copyright 2019, Bank of America Corporation.